This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. We need to understand what happiness really is. A lot of people think that happiness is simply an emotion or feeling that we experience when things are going well in our lives. However, happiness is actually much more than that. Happiness is a state of well-being that includes not only emotions, but also physical and mental health, a sense of meaning and purpose in life, and positive relationships with others. In other words, happiness is about more than just feeling good. It's about living a good life. Valeria Tellez interviews Saman Nasir, a healer, meditation coach, certified hypnotherapist, a member of the American Hypnosis Association, instructor at the Hypnosis Motivation Institute, and speaker. Saman Nasir is known to her friends and clients as Sammy. She is a hypnotherapist who has worked with people from all walks of life, helping them to work through their fears, phobias, and anxieties. Sammy has also helped clients to lose weight, get over addiction, and give up procrastination for good by addressing the root cause behind unhealthy patterns. An honors graduate from the Hypnosis Motivation Institute, Sammy is a highly skilled and experienced hypnotherapist who is passionate about the ability of hypnosis to help people to reach their goals. Though her private practice is based in Los Angeles, California, she has clients worldwide who reach out to help for her. Sammy has seen firsthand how hypnosis can change lives, and that is why she chose to be an instructor at the nationally accredited College of Hypnotherapy, where she herself graduated from. If you are looking for help with self-sabotage, Sammy can assist you in getting answers from the subconscious and releasing emotions that hold you back from living your true life. Allow me to introduce you to Sammy, a gifted hypnotherapist and teacher who speaks five languages and has a passion for helping people to rise above their challenges. Whether you are looking to heal from a breakup or simply get out of your own way, you will find Sammy to be a warm, supportive, and insightful guide on your journey to success. Meet Sammy at don'twaittolive.com. Here's the interview with Saman Nasir. In your own words, who is Saman Nasser? Well, Valerie, I would say that in this particular dimension of uh, time and space, I am someone that's very curious about the mind. I love getting answers on why we do the things that we do. What is the motivations behind some of those things that we do that don't seem quite aligned with our, our logic and our values? So that's what I like to do is I like to explore those mysteries and help other people. Um, get some real answers about why their behavior is not always aligned with what they want it to be. 
Just for the audience to know, Sammy, what inspired you to become a hypnotherapist? Well, I think I was just always more spiritually inclined. I remember uh, nobody around me or in my family ever meditated, but I did it without even really knowing what it was. And as I grew up, I, um, you know, was dissatisfied with the state of uh, things, the way people were unhappy around me or they were hurting each other. Um, they were hurting me and I had a lot of trauma that I needed to heal, but I didn't quite know how. And I always went at it only with a kind of a spiritual dimension. But as I um, started to study more of this, I started to incorporate a little bit of neuroscience and the brain and, um, you know, how our, our somatic um, experience works uh, in the body as well as the mind. And now I have I feel like a better understanding. So the hypnotherapy is just yet another element that I brought into the healing practices along with, um, you know, internal family systems therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, parts work, you know, somatic experiencing. So all of those together along with hypnotherapy provide a very deep healing experience for my clients. Yeah, and I can see that. I keep thinking to myself <laughs> that ah, maybe I should do that one of these days. Hypnotherapy, like a session, mm -hmm. or recommend that to my family members, which I have. But it seems to me like we are only ready to heal when we are, right, Sammy? Mm -hmm. It's not something that we should impose or even get involved out of curiosity. Would you say mm -hmm. so? Yes, I tend to agree with that. I feel like when you're ready, you really, really do know it. It's almost feels like an epiphany or a calling. But I also do believe that a lot of times people would be ready to heal, but they're very jaded or they feel like there are no answers or their situation is so uniquely terrible that there is no resolution and they sort of have given up. And I've noticed that um, a lot of times when people come to me, They've been referred by someone else and they told they tell me things like, oh, I gave up on therapy 10 years ago after doing it for 10 years. I realized there was, you know, no solution to my problems or nothing was going to help me until my sister-in-law was singing your praises or, you know, uh, my yeah. friend recommended me. But I have to tell you, I'm a skeptic. And, you know, just giving them that hope and saying, hey, look, you may have tried a lot of things, but you have not tried everything. Just give it a chance. Reinstills that hope that they don't have. The hope being taken away almost made them think that healing was not possible. So they weren't ready, not so much because their mind is not ready, but because their experience has taught them that nothing works. And that's that's very sad because there's so many different kinds of interventions that we can do. Hypnosis not being the only one. So it always makes me a little bit sad to think about, you know, people having to give up or being forced to give up their their healing journey. Not the message, I would say, that came to me recently by talking to another guest was about healing as a form. The phrase was, the goal of healing is to end or dispel all fears. So in a way, when we are healed, there are no more fears there. Is that something that you agree with too, Sammy, or do you have different ideas? I would say more or less it's the same idea, but perhaps in my mind, I internalize it as fear is always a part of our biology. It's a, a signal 
that something dangerous might be coming along. The problem becomes when we have trauma or we have hopelessness or we have a feeling of the fear is bigger than than I am. But once we really fully step into what we really are and how we're more than just this body, how we're more than just this, this person that we know, we start to no longer let the fear control us. So the fear is there, but as long as it's understood as a part of my biology and using it as a guidance system, we're no longer controlled by it. And that's a very different type of feeling than just having a fear and not knowing what to do with it or trying to repress it or suppress it. That is true. I agree. But the biological fear that you speak of, it happens in the moment, right, Sammy? It's not something that we are dwelling within the mind. It's something that it could be a car coming in our direction and then we just respond to it in that moment. Correct. Exactly. It's a call to action. And once we take the action, then, you know, we may take a moment to kind of center ourselves again, but that's what it's meant for. It's not meant to be just one ongoing thing that we're not taking care of, but we're just dwelling on the fear, like you said. I would just mention the blog post that you have written. It's titled, How to Make Happiness Your Choice. The conversation today is based on that article. My first question is about the difference between happiness and joy. I might have asked you the question before, but I don't remember. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, yeah, so joy is more of a uh, a feeling. It's it feel it feels like a fulfilling type of feeling, and you get that in the moment when you experience something really intensely amazing or beautiful. Happiness is more of a baseline. It's it's not so much that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm drinking right now, so I'm happy, or I'm hanging out with my friends and that's happiness. Yes, that is in a sense, but it's more of a consistent feeling. If it's up and down, then it's not really happiness. Then it's something else. It's another feeling. It might be excitement or it might be hopefulness or it might be joy. But happiness, I view as something that you're not chasing directly, but it's a result of all the other beautiful actions that you take in life, including following your purpose. And it's always there in the background. And that's what I see as happiness versus joy, curiosity, wonder. They might be a, a little bit more momentary or more specific to the situation versus happiness is more broad. That makes a lot of sense. So you're connecting happiness or the feeling of happiness to, from what I understand, contentment, satisfaction, and perhaps fulfillment. Right, Sammy? Yes. Yeah, that resonates true to me. The article you wrote caught my attention when you talked about neurotransmitters and how they are connected to happiness, the influence us when it comes mm. to happiness. I have heard this before, but not the way you write. So I have other questions here. But for now, the main question is, what is the connection between neurotransmitters and happiness or joy? Yes. So neurotransmitters are um, the brain's way of saying that, hey, if you do this thing, you will be rewarded. It's kind of a, a promise. So when we think about something that we anticipate will bring us joy, for example, I'll use a very basic example with food. If we have this really beautiful uh, meal in front of us, our brain starts to create uh, dopamine in anticipation of the pleasure that we're going to have. It's really meant to be a survival mechanism so that we can continue to pursue the things that um, you know are, are linked to our survival, looking for food, looking for a mate, right? Being warm, 
um, not being, you know, overly wet or, you know, or being wet when we need to be and, 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 you know, showering and hygiene and all of those things. So when these neurotransmitters are released, they're also a call to action. And just like we talked about fear earlier, um, the happiness neurotransmitters like dopamine is kind of a feeling of, hey, if you do this, this is going to be a reward. And that's why we we feel happy. It's not just there to give us a, a high, right? The good feelings are not really just there for that. They can be used as such, but the biological purpose of these neurotransmitters and happiness is so we can stay on the right track so that we have a kind of a monitoring system inside of us that says, hey, the, the food source is drying up. We need to move to an area that has more fields, right? Because our ancestors had to constantly look for you know food and fresh sources of water the happiness was there to to let them know that hey you're on the right track you just found fresh water so now in today's society we don't really need it for survival right because our survival in modern society is a little bit more guaranteed than it was for our ancestors now happiness gets abused a little bit because we flood our brains with so much dopamine with, you know, movies and video games, um, you know, and the internet and our phones, that it's lost its original meaning, which was to guide us to do something that ensured our survival. And because of our flooding our, our brains with that, that neurotransmitter stops having the effect that it did. And we kind of become resistant to these neurotransmitters. So that's what I wrote about in my article. I touched upon it. Yes, you did. And I was trying to understand more. I mean, I would love for you to explore a little bit more the function of each of these neurotransmitters, the dopamine, serotonin, and endorphins, because I don't often talk about these things. So it kind of fascinates me how the brain works, the body itself, uh, our biology, how amazing it is. So talk to me about the what each one of them each of these neurotransmitters do or how do we get them? And then also when it is too much, that's, you also mentioned that in the article, when we get too much of each one of them, something else happens. So I'd love to hear more about that, Sammy. Sure. Yes. So dopamine is probably going to be the most important one that I talk about um, just because we see the effects of that more and especially in, in people around us, we can kind of pinpoint what gives them dopamine versus serotonin endorphins are a little bit more subtle, I would say. So dopamine is meant to be a reward neurotransmitter. So it's supposed to entice you to do something. And then the anticipation of something creates this sort of this juice, this drive to move <laughs> something almost like a motivation yeah. Yeah. which as you can imagine in excessive amounts could become a compulsion as well it could become deviant but it's really meant to get us to do something and then the dopamine is re released as a way of locking in behavior to condition us that hey remember last time you did it and it felt good you should go out there and do it again and again and again that's the point of dopamine is to kind of get you to do that thing. It's that little voice in your head that's like, oh, take a little bit of a longer nap or binge watch the show. It's going to feel really good. Get a glass of wine with it. That's going to feel even better, right? That's all dopamine in play. And it's very important because it can affect the quality of our life completely. That makes so much sense. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm listening to you. I'm like, wow, it's so true. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's fascinating, really, these neurotransmitters. And then 
serotonin is really meant to regulate your mood. It's supposed to give you that feeling of, ah, everything's okay. My kids are there playing. They're getting along. My husband, you know, he loves me. He cares about me. You know, I have the clothes set aside for tomorrow's meeting. I'm really ready. I feel good about my life. It's like more subtle. I would say it's a little bit more linked to happiness, what I was talking about, that baseline. So that's serotonin. That's the feeling we get when life is aligned and everything seems to be in place and things are looking good, but not too good, like dopamine, right? Serotonin is a little bit more like, hey, things are okay. You're safe. And then endorphins is just more of a body kind of good feeling. So when we work out, um, you know, our body releases uh, the growth hormone, the human growth hormone, HGH, and, you know, some other hormones that make us feel good because there's a lot more oxygen going in our cells. And that's kind of a body, a little bit of a body high. That's endorphins. And uh, actually, another one that I very gently touched on in my article was um, oxytocin. And that's the bonding hormone. That's the hormone that binds mothers to their babies. But also, you know, as an adult, um, two people, right, when they're very romantically connected to each other, there's a lot of oxytocin there. It's also called the cuddle hormone for that reason. But it's really meant to kind of ensure two people's survival by bringing them together because survival, you know, existed in numbers for so long. The oxytocin was there to bond people together so they wouldn't be isolated. So that's the function of these neurotransmitters. It's interesting how we here talk a lot about spirituality and sometimes we forget about the body, how it works. <laughs> what caught my attention in your piece that you wrote, you said also that too much of it would cause feelings of anxiety and depression. That surprised me to see that. Mm. Yes. Um, and, you know, there's a very good scientific reason for that, why in huge quantities these um, hormones become toxic. One, as you can imagine, too much of anything in the body, right, then it, it becomes very difficult for the liver to, to filter it out. But another very interesting but almost very devastating, if not used properly, mechanism that happens in the brain is when the brain detects too much of a hormone, such as dopamine or serotonin, it says, oh, we're not supposed to be this happy because if we're this happy, then we might miss other important cues that we need. If mm. Sam is really gelled out on life, she may not notice when she gets fired from her job. She may not notice when her house is falling apart. Um, she'll just be happy all the time. She'll be like, oh, no big <laughs> so, Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> also, and as you know, the brain is all about survival. The brain is very directly linked to ego, right? Um, Spirituality comes from beyond the mind, but the mind is all about preservation and, and preservation of our biology. So when it detects too much of a hormone, not only does it try to take it out very quickly, but it also creates more receptors, which means imagine a lock and key mechanism. You have a lock and a key that fits into it. There's receptors that actually receive these hormones. And when the brain receives these hormones in these receptors, there's less of it in the brain and there's less for you to sense. So the brain creates more receptors that takes out that dopamine or that serotonin from the brain because there's too much of it. And now suddenly there's so many receptors, there's none left in your brain because it's all went to those receptors. And now when you go back to normal life, it doesn't feel as good because the little bit of serotonin that you would have had in your daily activities 
now is being taken up by receptors because the brain actually created more receptors out of fear that there was too much of a hormone. That's why after any kind of high, there seems to always be that crash that comes. That is directly related to the brain saying, "Uh oh, too much free floating dopamine in the brain. I can't allow you to feel this good. Let me create more receptors. They can take it out. And that's kind of a semi-permanent change. It's very dangerous to get extreme amounts of happiness all at once because then you become resistant to that happiness because of this very mechanism. So too much of these things is not a good thing. Right. Too much of anything. That I mean, we have heard this so much, but it's fascinating how the body does it automatically. It's innate to it. It's just... We don't have to even think about it. It will do it for us. Although we can help, right, Sammy? You give some suggestions on how to help balance, actually, these uh, hormones. I'll be going through them in a moment. But for now, I have some questions for you about, yeah, endorphins. I just want to mention that you also wrote that when there is too much of endorphins, then it can lead to pain, tolerance, and even addiction. Would that be emotional or physical or both? In cases of endorphins, I would say it's more physical, but you would also feel it emotionally. So uh, if you notice when you work out really hard, a lot of times you don't feel the pain immediately, but you feel it the next day a little bit more. Part of that is the lactic acid buildup. But another part of that is while you're working out, your body's releasing endorphins, which lets you not sense pain as much so that you can continue doing what you're doing, so you can finish your task. The body releases endorphins to say, here you go. Um, you can work extra hard right now, um, but you won't feel the pain of it. Too much endorphins uh, in the body will actually create an inability for us to feel pain, and we need that. So when you know we, we do something and we don't feel anything, because we're supposed to feel a little bit of pain, because pleasure comes from really feeling the opposite of pain. So we need a little bit of pain, a little bit of sensation in the body. When the brain detects there's not enough of that, it makes you crave things like, you know, things that you would normally feel a little bit more. So that can lead to addiction because you would, if you were taking one pill for something, now you need two to kind of get the same effect because your body's not feeling much anymore and you need that feeling back. Right. That sounds very dangerous too, right? You didn't mention in the article about oxytocin. What would be the side effect or too much of it would lead to? I didn't see the information there and I'm curious about it. Uh, for oxytocin, right? Um, so too much oxytocin can actually lead to addiction with another person. So if, let's say, two people were intimate and then the next day one of them has to go to work, the other one would actually be like, no, don't go to work, stay here, because the high from the oxytocin is so high, and now they're trying to match that. And it can create codependent relationships. Um, you'll see people when, um, you know, sometimes when people get together, they find this new relationship and they're like, oh my God, I love it so much. She's the one. And then they move in too quickly and then they get married too quickly. And then over time, as the oxytocin wears off, they're like, oh, this is not even the same person. It doesn't feel like the same person. That's because so much oxytocin was there. It was skewing our view of what this person really is and that we're not really aligned with them. It was the oxytocin, which is very, very powerful, by the way. It's probably more powerful than dopamine. So that's the side effect of too much oxytocin. Does it happen to everyone, Sammy? Because there are some people who experience just the perfect amount of oxytocin. 
So yeah. that doesn't lead them to become addicted or cause codependence, as you call it. So I'm wondering, how does it work? Why do some of us find that balance, release just the right amount of hormones, and some of us don't? Mm-hmm. And usually you'll find that people that have had the kind of parenting where the the parents really uh, took care of their needs, but didn't give them everything that they asked for. They created a balance and they said, okay, you can have candy like, you know, once a week in this amount, if you do this, this, and this, and you'll feel better because you will have earned it. And so the kids learn to titrate their own experience and they learn impulse control because they're promised something. And then the parents keep that promise and they learn that it's okay for me to not get everything that I want all the time because I will get it eventually. And they start to form a habit. Then anything outside of that in adulthood doesn't feel good. That's why you'll see one person usually out of a group that's like, oh, no, I I don't want to drink. Oh, no, no, thank you to cigarettes. And people ask them, aren't you even tempted? Like, how come you're not even tempted? And the person's like, I don't know, because they're just doing it unconsciously, right? Versus if you have the type of parent that's very neglectful or, you know, abuses the child, right? The child learns that, oh my God, I only get oxytocin every now and then when my parent hugs me. So I need to, I need to seek it out as much as possible because I don't know when I'm going to get it again. And that creates a very toxic, addictive cycle because then they repeat it with their partners as well. And on the other hand, you have the type of children that whose parents are like, you can have anything you want. As soon as the word leaves your mouth, I fulfill it, right? And those kids never learn impulse control either. So it's all about that balance and being in that, you know, middle sweet spot where not every single need gets met all the time, but it gets met sufficiently. That's um, amazing to hear that it's connected to conditionings then, the way we have been brought up. It has definitely been my case, uh, not having enough and then really looking for frantically. Yeah. And then led me to a lot of confusion and suffering. Yeah. As you wrote, you say the key is to find a balance that works for us, for each one of us. And then you, you have suggestions, of course. But before we go through the suggestions mentioned, I would like to Talk a little bit more about balance. This idea we have that balance is a place, a destination, that we get there and we stay there happily ever after. What is your understanding of balance? Balance is something that we may need to tweak uh, every now and then. But there does come a time when you're like, okay, I feel like this is kind of a formula that works. This many hours of work and, you know, this much money seems to satisfy me spending this much time with friends versus family, right? This is kind of my, you know, that that middle zone, which which I really like. You can get to that place where you kind of figure out what you like. You've been listening to your cues. You've been noticing what makes you feel good, but at the same time, what's healthy for you. But there will come a time when something might feel out of balance and that's when we can look at it and we can tweak it. But it's a lot easier once you get there to kind of maintain it versus first figuring out how to create balance in the first place, especially those of us that haven't had that kind of parenting, that have, haven't had that um, kind of caretaker that's told us, hey, your needs are important and I, they will be met and then to meet them consistently. If we're lied to or made to feel that we can't 
you know, we can't be happy and we have to go through these very narrow channels of finding that happiness, then it's going to be very hard for us to figure out what creates balance because we don't know. We don't know how to detect anything in between a very negative experience and a very extreme high. The middle traumatized people don't know especially if they were traumatized as children. They don't know how to read neutral experiences anymore. They only know extreme stress or they know extreme happiness and relief, but they can't detect the middle. So once we really learn to detect the middle through meditation and therapy and you know good relationships, healthy relationships, then we start to realize, okay, this is where I need to be. And that's our cue that that's where the balance might lie for us. Yeah, when I think about trauma, it's incredible how we pay a high price for it. On, I have oh, seen yeah. in my own life. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, um, trauma is one of those things that is very, very dangerous, especially to experience it as a child, because we never get to we never get to develop that part of the brain that can just happy without us creating happiness or struggling to create it. It atrophies. So we have to create it as uh, from scratch as adults, because we don't even know what that would even feel like. And the brain's very scared to move towards happiness because that's not its, you know, comfort zone. So it keeps pulling us back into these stressful experiences, these dramatic experiences, because that feels safe to the survival brain because it says, well, your parents were like this and you survived. That's That means that's what you need in the future to survive. Yeah, you're right about that. We, we don't have a reference, that solid reference for happiness. So we are kind of constantly trying to find that in our own adult life, right, with the, the adult brain. Yes, absolutely. You said it perfectly, actually, when you said the reference point. You mentioned earlier the body and how it works, the chemistries and how the body does its own thing in the attempt to survive. It's a survival mechanism. It's, it's almost a perfect survival machine. And then you mentioned duality because this is a dualistic reality. So that's how the body operates. And then you also mentioned uh, non-duality. Like that would be the spiritual realm per se. So I wonder if we can kind of understand or acquire some knowledge from that non-dual reality, if that can influence and impact the body somehow. Yeah, what is your understanding about, what would you say when it comes to non-duality and duality? Can non-duality affect duality? Wow, that's a question that I, I don't even know how to formulate because it's a topic that I'm exploring here now in the moment. Mm-hmm. Yes, I would say that, um, you know, non-duality, uh, the way that I see that is I see that more of a, a connection to the divine and sort of in this human experience, the portal to that I see as more right brain. The right side of the brain is more connected to the the not the abstract, but, you know, I would say that it's connected to the broader uh, meaning. Versus the left brain is more of your logical brain. So when children are born, they're pretty much in their right brain. Um, That's also why they're so vulnerable. But they pick up things without trying to, right? So they, they learn how to walk just by watching and just kind of immersing. They learn language without knowing any grammar. It's really such a beautiful thing. So when we talk about non-duality, 
that's the state that we're talking about. But for that, we really have to get the ego or the left brain or the the past or an idea of the future to really step aside. That takes an immense amount of trust because the ego needs to feel safe before it will step aside, truly step aside. Because if it doesn't step aside and we aim to be spiritual or non-dualistic, then the ego will just come through the back door and say, here, let me help <laughs> yeah. be non-dualistic. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah, <Yes>. right. <laughs> let me help you to be non-dual. Oh my God, Sammy, that is funny. <laughs> and true. <laughs> oh, yes. I didn't expect to hear that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the ego is very clever that way. It wants to survive and if it has to, um, what's the word, disguise itself. Uh, you know, in a in a orange cloak, and say, if you were spiritual, you'd have this, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, true. <laughs> I love how straightforward you are too when it comes to <laughs> to these ideas. <laughs> uh, that's beautiful. So so true. But we know that everything is connected, right? There's no separation really. Separation is the illusion that is present right here now. So it seems to be separated, but it's not. So in a way, yes. non-duality, it's being duality. Duality, non-duality is one and the same. Yes. And I would say when we form a concept of something or whenever we ask a question or go to explain it, we have to step into um, duality to explain it. But if we just understand and we just connect without really fully uh, creating the logic behind it or a reason behind it, we're automatically in more of a non-dualistic experience. But the reason we only see it in flashes is because of that insecurity. What if I give up control? What if I give up understanding something? Will I be safe? And it's especially, particularly not easy if we've been betrayed a lot or lied to a lot or abused or used, because then the ego will be very, very vicious about not giving up control to let us experience anything non-dual. Yeah, I love, I mean, I love everything about you, Sammy, you know, <laughs> you're just very straightforward, very wise in both worlds. Like you, you dance this beautiful dance of science and spirituality. So the suggestion, going back to that, uh, to happiness and how to keep those hormones balanced. So you gave lots of suggestions. The first one is to eat foods that contain... It's a tryptophan. Tryptophan, right. Please talk to me for a moment about that, Sammy, because I don't want to go from one suggestion to another. Mm -hmm, sure, yes. Um. So the, the brief answer to that is uh, the amino acids are usually the building blocks for a lot of things in our body, and partly they play a role also in, in hormones. And so when we eat foods that are high in amino acids, such as uh, glutamine or tryptophan, um, then it helps, it becomes easier for the body to produce those hormones that we talked about. Um, so if there is a shortage of, of the raw material for a hormone, then it won't get produced. Or if we need a supporting hormone to produce dopamine, for example. Um, and I only listed um, tryptophan, but, you know, obviously vitamin D is very essential. You know, if the thyroid is out of balance, it's very important to get more iodine and then, you know, uh, vitamin Bs, a B complex, but particularly B1 and 2 are very essential for happiness and mood as well. And they're important for energy. So those are some of the suggestions, nutritionally speaking. 
One that surprised me was cold showers. That was the next uh, suggestion you gave. That one's a tough one. So do you do that? Do you take cold showers? <laughs> yes, I don't. yes, I do. I do. <laughs> and it's really one of the most tough thing that, <laughs> like, the body wants comfort, right? Um, but uh, cold showers are extremely essential. In fact, if I was only going to list one or two suggestions, I would have only put meditation and cold showers above anything ah, else. Wow. And the reason why cold showers are are important is because happiness is not just the presence of, of a feel-good hormone. It's also the absence of pain sensation that automatically makes us happier when we detect less pain. So when we take cold showers, it desensitizes us to pain because it's so uncomfortable to be in a cold shower that our body has to learn very quickly how to tolerate extreme sensations in fact, people that are very emotionally abused, one of the most healing things that they do is they sit in a bucket of ice. The reason why, um, yeah, it's a whole thing, right, For that they do in even trauma centers now is, is sitting in a bucket of ice because for trauma survivors, every sensation feels like death. It, it, you know, every single sarcastic comment, every single, you know, comment on Facebook or, yeah. you know, <laughs> yes. even there, uh, you know. <laughs> the, the egg that they made for breakfast, if that falls down, like, oh my God, nothing in my life is right. Yeah, right. That is so funny. Desensitize them to sensations in their body is very, very important because they're on hyper alert all the time. And cold showers help numb some of those sensations, but in a good way because your body creates the tolerance for it. So when it creates tolerance for extreme cold, it also creates automatically a tolerance for tough emotions. So that's why it's very important. There's a lot of research behind behind this. If not a cold shower, if it is a cold bath, how long would that be to stay there? Because that came to mind. I'll probably suggest my husband to do it too, <laughs> if we can tolerate that, of course. Yes, um, I would say as long as you, know, you, you can sit through it would be good. But I would suggest maybe building a tolerance for it. Right. So it starts yeah, with one minute, maybe two. Would you say that or a little bit more than two minutes? Yes, exactly. Exactly. I would say that. And also, I would say that it's also good in the beginning to gradually turn down the heat in the shower. So you might step in at a comfortable level and in a couple of minutes, just turn the faucet yeah. a little oh, bit. Gosh. Cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like a training, right? You got to make it as a, a step one, step two, step three <laughs> to get to the, the the cold. And eventually the ice. Wow, that I don't see myself doing that. But <laughs> amazing what you said. So if you had to give two suggestions, there would be cold showers and meditation, which is the next one now that I, I wanted to hear more about meditation. And before that, you suggested exercise which we all know, and you also mentioned that exercise will boost all three neurotransmitters, which is great to know. Yes, exercise really creates, first of all, it just sends a lot more of everything in the cells. So if you have a lot of uh, dopamine or serotonin, but it the blood is just kind of moving slow as it tends to do with people that are you know dehydrated and haven't worked out and their body hasn't been moving so it exercising just automatically maximizes what's in your body not just 
serotonin and dopamine, but also glucose and every other building block. So that is one of the biggest reasons. But the second reason is very similar to cold showers, which is tolerance, tolerance for painful sensations if you're working past your limit. And then the third most important reason is the HDH, the human growth hormone, which is not just good for happiness. It's really the youthful hormone. It's what gives people their youth. So to stay younger, longer, if we do an intense type of exercise, but in very short intervals, like high intensity training, HIIT training, then the body releases, I think it's 900% uh, more HGH, um, which is really, really good. So that's one of the reasons exercise was listed on my article. The other one before meditation actually is get outside. And then that has to do with the sun. And I would say vitamin D you mentioned earlier too. So that increases levels of serotonin. Mm -hmm, Correct. And Also going out in the sun um, and being outdoors puts us in more of that non-dualistic sort of space where we kind of blend in with nature because our focus goes off of ourselves. If we're in our room, we're just thinking about, oh my God, what do I have to do? Do people like me? (laughs) Where our attention is more broad. I have to say it again. I love how you go back and forth into the science and then spirituality, spirituality, science. Thank you, Sammy, for doing that. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I have a lot of appreciation for this balance. <laughs> so meditation. So that's the one of the biggest suggestions that you have. So I would love to hear more about it. Well, meditation is one of the ways that we can start to create um, space for whatever is going on in our in our lives at the moment, because we oftentimes have so many experiences, but we never get a chance to really integrate them into our into our psyche. We're either pushing away experiences or we're moving towards experiences, but then we don't take the time to do anything with them. And you can have a lot of great ideas, but I believe it's during a meditation that those beautiful ideas get crystallized. And until an idea gets crystallized, it's just kind of uh, this fleeting feeling. So meditation kind of cohesively brings all of those experiences together and lets you really figure out who you are, what's going on in life, what we need to do about it. Meditation just kind of provides all those answers, but does it in a way that's that's not coming from the limited thinking mind. It's tapping into something bigger. Right. So it's kind of that universal consciousness that we can tap into when we meditate. One that surprised me, one of your suggestions is uh, horizon gazing. I never thought about yes. this one. So talk to me about horizon gazing. How amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, so our our circadian rhythm, which is our um, sleep mechanism, has been really interrupted, obviously, because of artificial lights. And, you know, we're experiencing them very late into the night. And in the mornings, we're not a lot of times getting sunlight right away, because a lot of times we don't go outside. We're just you know, in offices and inside of buildings. So if we are able to gaze at the horizon, um, even a few minutes a day, particularly if we do it sunrise and sunset, that's giving our eyes the signal that, hey, it's morning now, the sun is rising and at night, it's letting us know that, hey, the, the sun is going down. That balances our biological clock, which has been interrupted so that the brain learns, okay, this is the time when I need to create melatonin for better sleep. 
and this is the time I need to create serotonin and more awakeness and alertness. That way we won't need as much, you know, coffee to stay awake because our rhythmic cycle will be more balanced. And we get a lot of light by staring at the horizon. And another reason why it's very important to go out somewhere where you can actually see the horizon is because when we have narrow focused attention, like when we're looking at a piece of paper or we're on our phone, our irises have to really, really, you know, change their shape to be able to focus. But when we let our vision be broad, then we can also have broad ideas because the vision is very connected to the brain. When we're in a constricted space, we have constricted thoughts. But it's a scientific fact that when we look at a broad um, thing and we let our focus be kind of gazed or glazed a little bit, that's very resetting. And can actually come up with solutions and ideas to problems, long-standing problems, if they just kind of ponder them while looking at a sunset, because there's an actual reason behind it. The vision is glazed, so the mind can really properly think and come up with better ideas. In a way, we can learn to experience the non-physical within the physical, which is incredible. I mean, Maybe that's what some of us call it, enlightenment, because mm -hmm. right, we feel so confined in the human body. It's so limited mm -hmm. in so many ways. But then when we access this realization that we are much bigger than just the body and the mind, then, yes, yeah, something else happens. I think one of the things that people seem to experience is peace, inner peace, which contentment, which has to do with the subject today, happiness. So we become a lot more happy, open to life and happy. So the your other suggestion was sleep. That's somewhat connected to the horizon gazing, right, uh, Sammy, somehow? Yes, yes, because uh, when sleep is interrupted and not really proper, which Again, we can fix that by going outdoors and gazing at the horizon and getting enough vitamin D and melatonin at night, body's natural melatonin, then our pineal glands can actually reset at night and our adrenal glands also reset at night. During the day, there's just too much work for our brain to do. It cannot do all of that repair that it needs to do. That happens at night. So that's when we really want to ensure that our sleep is very high quality, that there's no lights present, that we're getting off of our screens, our TVs and, and computers and phones at least a couple hours, if not more, before sleep time. Not eating too late in the night so that our body not still trying to digest food at that time. You know, not drinking coffee too late in the day. Those types of things, really making sure that our sleep is very high quality. That is a game changer. When our sleep improves, our overall well-being improves because we actually allowed our brain to do and rest the way that it needed to. I mean, it goes back to that idea of being present to what is present. It's kind of um, a challenge sometimes for all of us to, for some of us, I would say, to um, kind of practice all this all the time. <laughs> sometimes we get out of balance and then we find our way to balance. It's knowing how to go back into balance, right, Sammy? That is seems to be the important key, the important thing. Yes, and I think also understanding the reasoning behind things because a lot of times people are like, yeah, 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 I know I'm supposed to drink more water. Yes, I know I'm supposed to get more sleep. But once we give them enough reasons rather than just telling them what to do, 
they start to really internalize, okay, then this is what I need to do because yeah, I want to look younger. Yeah, I want my pineal glands to reset. Yes, I want my kidneys to have a chance. And then just this overwhelming need to to do something because it's good for us in so many different ways. Sometimes we just need to hear something said very differently before we say, okay, that's it. I'm definitely doing this. That's mm-hmm, true. <laughs> yeah, to be activated in that way. So true, so true. You mentioned supplements, which you did mention briefly earlier about vitamin B or the complex B vitamins. They are very important. You also mentioned omega-3 fatty acids. Would you like to add, Sammy, to this? Um, I would say definitely omega-3 um is very important to balance out because we have a omega-3, 6, and 9 in our bodies and we have an overload of 6 because cooking oils have it, all fried foods have it. And too much of a ratio where uh, omega-6 is very high and omega-3 is low, it actually depletes omega-3. So if we can't give up more omega-6, then we should definitely increase omega-3 so that ratio can balance itself. So I would say that's very important. And another suggestion, which is, uh, oh, it's a beautiful one. It's about spend time with friends and family. So you, here you talk about human connection and, and happiness. I love mm-hmm. that. Yes. And it's very important because um, we're mammals and mammals are hardwired to survive in numbers and uh, in tribes. So when we're too isolated for too long, that sends our brain the message that we're abandoned, even though we may have done that by choice. We may have worked very hard to get away from everyone because we're like, oh, I want a fresh start. I want it to just be me. And, you know, I want this apartment in a faraway city. I want to get away as far as possible from, you know, all the gossip and all of that. And it may be our choice, but to our survival brain, it doesn't know that. If it if you don't have enough human touch, if you know, you're know you not shaking hands or hugging people and talking to people and, and seeing them in front of you, it sends the brain the message that, uh-oh, you've been abandoned. You're not going to survive. So why don't I just kind of give up and conserve your resources or energy level actually drops. Um, so because of that, we really need human connection. I remember feeling the same way. You're thinking this way for a while that I needed to be alone to do the work that I had to do, write my first book, and and I got to do that. And then I felt immediately the need to connect again, to be around people, very close to people oh, yeah. again. And, and let me qualify that by saying that, you know, those are okay. The, the little periods of time where you need to self-reflect and all of that. But when it becomes like six or seven years and we're just really bitter about everybody and we're like, oh, I just want to get away from everyone. I can't trust anyone. And we become very isolated. That's when the problem begins. The last piece you suggested was the understanding of what happiness really is. And then you say happiness is a state of well-being that includes not only emotions, but also physical and mental health, a sense of meaning and purpose in life and positive relationships with others. Happiness is more than just feeling good. It is about living a good life. I love the way you ended that too. So it goes back to those broader, bigger ideas or seeing life from this larger picture view, which is not just one thing, but it's the balance between many things. I love that, Sammy. Would you like to add anything to that last piece about happiness being physical and mental? 
Yes, I would say that happiness, when it's chased very, very directly and very impulsively, it tends to push away happiness. But when we let happiness be a natural byproduct of all the things that we're doing and we're aligning ourselves with a purpose, we're aligning ourselves on our values, and we let happiness be a natural consequence of our good behaviors, then it's really, we tap into it without trying. But if we chase it directly, we're continuously giving the message to ourselves, I'm chasing it because I don't have it, or I'm chasing it because I don't trust that what I've created so far is going to last. And it's a very negative message. And it is a very scary message that puts us back into fight or flight. And we can't truly have happiness if we're in fight or flight. Before we end the conversation today, Sammy, I would like to thank you again for what you do, your beautiful work. I love the way you communicate these messages. And again, I love, love that you bring spirituality and science, you merge them. Thank you so much for doing that and for being you, of course. I love your presence here on the podcast and in my life. Thank you so much, Valeria. The feeling is mutual. I definitely enjoy uh, these interviews and these talks, and I absolutely love your channel. Thank you. And then I'd like to mention some of the, uh, I think we talked off record about this, about some of the practices that have helped me with happiness. It's um, gratitude, uh, appreciation, also accepting myself exactly the way I am and making the mistakes I make sometimes, not big ones, but this sense of harmony and peace that I can sense in my body and mind and soul, of course. Being in the moment, that's something that you mentioned uh, when you suggested meditation. And it's very much connected. Mindfulness, being here now, listening to music, dancing, <laughs> doing what I love to do, which talking, having this conversation today and doing, engaging in creative work. Oh, it just makes me truly happy in that sense. Mm-hmm. And then being creative. Then also something else that I wrote here, because you inspired me to write these things. <laughs> also feeling connected and not just feeling connected, but staying connected with this spiritual realm that we call, I think in science, they might call it unified field of consciousness, that everything is connected. So the trust that I have for that, that everything is connected and whatever is happening is, it's okay to happen exactly as it does. So all these things kind of make me feel much happier. And it's funny to see that it comes a lot more from the uh, non-physical reality than into the physical. That's what I see. Don't take me wrong. I love eating, you know, good foods and enjoy, uh, but I'm very healthy with my foods. So it's not, they are not they don't taste that great <laughs> a lot of times. So, but I really enjoy, you know, eating healthy and, you know, a piece of chocolate, dark chocolate and all that, vegan. But there's something about these things that I just talked about now that the invisible world, there's, um, there's the subtlety of this, the, the broader reality that it touches, kind of flavors this, the physical reality. So... Would you like to add anything to that? Because I would love to hear some of your thoughts on what I just said. Yes, absolutely. I think what you're saying is 100% correct. You're talking about a a 
purpose uh, that's much deeper or sort of a connection that just supersedes uh, you know, everything in uh, known reality. And I think that's very important for us to have because as human beings, we are always in deep search of meaning. And I think one of the biggest meanings that we can have is that everything is to trust that everything has a meaning. Mm. Right? <laughs> yeah, isn't it interesting? <laughs> yeah, it's to trust that everything is in order, right? I kind of changed. It's not even that it has a design or a plan, but everything is in order. Everything is well, it's okay the way it is. <laughs> Thank you so much again, Sammy. And before we say goodbye today, I have two questions. One's a technical one. But before that, let me ask you this um, fun question. It might be a fun one. It might not be. What is another word for happiness to end the conversation today? Um, I would say another word for happiness is contentment. And my last question is about finding you. What's the best way to find you? Where can we find more information like your services, future projects? Uh, sure, that would be my website at don'twaittolive.com. Wonderful. Are you on social media too, Sammy? Uh, yes, I don't have a big social media presence, um, but I'll be looking to expand that in the future. Ah, wonderful. Thank you so much again for your presence today, and we'll talk soon. Sounds good, Valeria. Bye for now, Sammy. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Saman Nasir and her work, please visit don'twaittolive.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.